Welcome to the preaching podcast of Poplar Springs Baptist Church in Hiram, Georgia, and the preaching ministry of our senior pastor, Wayne Meadows. It is our desire that the message you hear today would call you to a closer walk with Jesus Christ, and that your life would give glory to God as you apply the biblical truths proclaimed. For more information about the ministry of Poplar Springs Baptist Church, check us out on the web, www.psbchurch.net. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the preaching of God's Word. If you have a Bible tonight, open it with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We're continuing on in our series, Beyond Degree, uh, examining the heart of Christ, His heart for His own. A heart that he self-described as being gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly. Uh, tonight, I want us to uh, continue in that thought, uh, but perhaps from a different angle. Uh, tonight, I want us to consider that he's not a squishy Jesus. He's not a squishy Jesus. Uh, I have one child who has a fascination with squishies. Maybe you don't know what a squishy is. Uh, it's a way to take a parent's money, is what it is. Uh, it, these little toys, if you can even call them that, they're not exactly stuffed animals. They're, they're animals or shapes or something. Think of a stress ball, but for a child uh, in some shape that attracts them with loud colors. They squeeze it and squeeze it and squeeze it, and it pops back to shape over and over and over again. Um, my hope is that uh, as we've gone through this study together, considering the heart of Christ, his compassion, his sympathy, his empathy for us, is that you don't think I'm trying to present to you a squishy Jesus. He's this soft Savior, if you will. Uh, tonight, I want us to consider his heart from another angle. John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 33 is what I want us to read tonight. Of course, John 11 is uh, the encounter of, of Jesus and Lazarus in the graveyard. It's the story of Lazarus being raised from death to life simply by Jesus calling him to it. And in the midst of the story, we have the heart of Jesus on display for us in a very unique fashion. So let's hear the word of God tonight. John chapter 11, verse 33. John 11, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, when Jesus saw her weeping, of course, that that weeping uh, is the sister of Lazarus, uh, who was upset that that Christ hadn't come. Uh, They'd sent your friend. He's sick. If you'll come, we know you can heal him. And we know how chapter 11 opens. Jesus tarries. He delays. He comes upon the scene. And uh, they call uh, to Mary. They call to Martha. Hey, uh, Jesus is now here. Mary runs out quickly, meets him, and uh, encounters him. There's a conversation that ensues. And um, she's weeping. She's weeping. Understandably so. Jesus sees her weeping. He's heard the charge of her. If you'd been here. We wouldn't be here right now. She's weeping. And the Jews who had come with her were also weeping. There's a lot of of weeping going on. Wailing is perhaps a better picture to form in our minds. 
Uh, these were the Jews here were uh, perhaps friends of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, uh, fellow countrymen, kinsmen, perhaps even, but but also in this custom and culture, uh, professional mourners, if you will. They would be there with these families in a time of grief and an extended time of mourning. And so they're wailing also. And then John tells us in the middle of the verse, he, that is Jesus, was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. If you're reading from the ESV translation, you'll notice there at the end of the word moved, there's a superscript, uh, number one, the numeral one. If you look down in the bottom margin of the page, it, it will give you an alternate translation for the word moved. It's literally in the Greek language, uh, indignant, indignant. Jesus was indignant in this moment where the weeping of Mary and the weeping of these Jews was taking place. He was indignant in his spirit, in his heart, in the inner man, and he was greatly troubled. This whole study is about the heart of Jesus. And once again, we have his heart for us on display. So far, we've Explored in this emotional life of Christ, his compassion and sympathy for us as sinners, those who are his own. His, his heart has gone out to us. Last week we talked about how it stands before us and even beside us, all while we struggle with our sin. But perhaps you've speculate, speculated, and rightfully so, about the other side of the emotional spectrum. And how that relates to Christ and us. After all, it's clear, especially in the Gospels, that Jesus expressed anger. He expressed anger. He self-described as being gentle and lowly, but he expressed anger as well. He even made a whip and turned over tables. I mean, the Gospel writer tells us Jesus made a whip. How would you like to have been one of the twelve walking up to Jesus on that day, sitting under the shade of an olive tree, uh, braiding together some cords, and uh, what you got going on there, Jesus? Just making a whip. You're making a whip. What are you going to do with that? Going to go chase some people and turn over some tables. This is Jesus. He's making a whip. He's going to drive people out of the temple courtyard. He's going to overthrow their tables. Were all of these moments of his expressed anger, moments of emotional instability? Was this out of character for a a Savior who is gentle and lowly? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Jesus was in full control of all of his actions and emotional faculties, even in those moments. Even in those moments where he was expressing anger, he was acting without sin. Make no mistake, Jesus is not a hot-headed Savior, but he is a hot-hearted Savior. He's not a squishy Jesus. He's not a squishy Jesus. These emotions, they sprang from his heart. What does that mean for us today? 
His indignation here in John 11 was in his spirit. Inwardly, he was greatly troubled. It was an emotional response to what he was seeing and hearing and experiencing. A response of indignation. But what does that mean? Well, before we get to that, I think it's important for us to remember tonight that what we see of Jesus in the Gospels is who he remains today. What we see of Jesus in the gospel is who he remains today. It's not that he was one way in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and now uh, in his ascended state, he is something entirely different. No, what we see him uh, doing and being here on earth, so he is in heaven. In his earthly ministry, Jesus both acted and felt. He both moved and was moved. When we hear texts like Matthew 20, verse 34, Mark 1, verse 41, Luke 7, uh, verse 13, we, we see a side of Jesus that we can understand a little bit. It tells us that he was moved with pity. He uh, saw crowds and responded to them with compassion. In the King James translation, those words pity and compassion, uh, I believe, are sometimes translated as bowels. His bowels yearned within him. Uh, That's a word that that we don't use in that same way anymore. Uh, But it simply meant that that he was was moved inwardly. It it wasn't just some emotional uh, surface uh, level experience. No, inwardly, in the recesses of who he was as truly man and truly God, he was moved with pity and compassion. His emotional status, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. Dane Ortland reminds us, and this is, this is what I think is lost upon us so often at, at the Christmas season when we celebrate the incarnation of Christ. Listen carefully. There was a time, let me, let me say it this way. There's never been a time when the Son was not, but there has been a time when Jesus was not. All right. There's never been a time when the Son was not, but there has been a time when Jesus was not. The Son has always been. He existed, John 1, as the eternal Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The eternal uh, nature of the second person of the Godhead. He has always been. But there has been a time when Jesus was not. Jesus came through the Incarnation. When the second person of the Godhead took upon himself humanity. He was truly God and truly man. And now that he has taken on that humanity, that will never end. This is the astonishing fact of the incarnation. That now the second person of the Godhead dwells forevermore in bodily form, in bodily fashion. This is what Thomas encountered, what the twelve encountered there in the upper room. He has a physical body to this day, to this moment. One like ours, but yet unlike ours. It was one in which they, he could partake in eating physical food, a physical body that could be touched, but it was also distinct from ours. But, but he retains that today. His humanity is still intact. In Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism says in question 49... We have our own flesh in heaven. 
We have our own flesh in heaven. Now, I can't explain all of that to you tonight, but I believe it to be absolutely true. That somewhere right now, this very moment, our Savior in physical bodily form exists. He's there. We'll encounter Him. He's still truly God and truly man. His humanity will never end. And one implication of that truth, of his permanent humanity, is that when we see the feeling and the passions and affections of Christ incarnate in the Gospels towards sinners and sufferers, what we are seeing is who Jesus is for us even still today. So we see him engaging in this way. Acting in this way, his, his humanity on display for us, if you will. And still, that's how he remains. All that it meant for Jesus to be truly human, both physical and emotional, he remains today. For our study now, that means what he felt as he expressed it in the Gospels, he still feels today. So it is even with his indignation. He was angry then and still expresses uh, anger now. We've looked at his compassion. We've seen that on display even now in heaven as his heart goes out before us, as it stands beside us. But what about his anger? What about his indignation? What about the other end of the spectrum? That's what I want us to think about tonight. How does the emotive indignation bound within the heart of our Savior fit with us as his own? So let's see if we can dive in just a little bit. To make sense of this, I think the first thing that we need to understand is that Jesus' compassion and anger aren't at odds. Jesus' compassion and anger aren't at odds. Rather, they go together hand to hand. His compassion and his anger are bound together, hand to hand. And the reason for that is is that Christ, being uh, truly God, and being uh, the, the, the true man that he was, morally perfect, that perfection demands that to be the case. That his compassion and anger are wed together. His compassion and his anger are certainly different than ours, or to a different degree than ours. I think we would all confess tonight that in our fallen status, as it relates to our emotions, uh, that we not only sinfully overreact in many instances, we could probably think of sometimes even today, we sinfully overreact, but at the same time, we sinfully underreact as well. We sinfully overreact and sinfully underreact. But Jesus was the perfect human being. He displayed moral perfection. In every instance, in every ethical situation, he responded rightly. That means his anger, his indignation was always appropriate. But that anger was always bound to his compassion. B.B. Warfield was the great Princeton theologian 
uh, there at the turn of the, the 20th century. Um, it's amazing to me how far our Ivy League institutions and many of our college institutions have come uh, from their, their theological foundings and histories. Uh, Princeton especially, man, some of the greatest theologians uh, in, in the history of the American church were, were there at Princeton for so long. B.B. Warfield among them. And he wrote much about uh, the emotional state of Christ. And he mo- wrote much about his compassion in relation to his indignation. But he writes, it would be impossible for a moral being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent and unmoved. The emotions of indignation and anger belong, therefore, to the very self-expression of a moral being as such and cannot be lacking to him in the presence of wrong. So do you hear what Warfield's saying? That if a, a person is morally perfect, anger can't be absent from them. Their moral perfection demands that at times, in appropriate circumstances, uh, indignation cannot be lacking. They cannot stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent and unmoved. So that begins to help us understand what's going on in the life of Jesus when we see his anger coming to the forefront, when we see, him, see his emotion of indignation on display, it lets us know that he's standing in the presence of that moment of something that simply cannot be ignored, that cannot leave him indifferent or unmoved. And what we discover when we look a little bit closer is that his anger is connected to his compassion, specifically in connection to his own. They rise and they fall together. Not inversely proportional, but rising and falling together. Think about it like this. The father who loves his children the most is the one whose anger rises most fiercely when he discovers they're being mistreated. The father who loves his children the most is the one whose anger rises most fiercely when he discovers that they are being mistreated. This is what we see happening in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. We're going to come back to John 11 in just a moment, but but let me give you a few other passages just to think about for a second. Matthew 18, verse 6. At some point, we're going to do a series, a study on... uh, the hard sayings of Jesus. Because it's amazing sometimes some of the things that we hear coming out of the mouth of Jesus, right? We don't, we don't let them shock us the way that they should. Matthew 18, 6 is one of those. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's Jesus talking. Jesus said, it'd be better for us to go pour you some concrete boots and push you off a bridge and sink to the bottom than for you to deal with one of these little ones. Now, let's be clear about what he's speaking of when he speaks of little ones. I think immediately our mind wants to go to children, to the innocent, And certainly I think there's an application that's there. 
But more specifically, as Jesus uses the language of little ones here, he's referring to his own. He's referring to his disciples, those who come to him in a childlike faith, those who receive him as as a child would receive him, his little ones. He says, anyone who would offend one of my little ones and lead them to sin and cause them to sin, it's better for them to be thrown off the bridge and drown. That's a strong word from Jesus. But do you see what's happening there? We, we see clearly the anger, the indignation at the end of that verse. But, but do you notice that it's connected in the beginning of that verse with the compassion that he has for his own? They rise and they fall together. Jesus' heart goes out to his own, to his little ones, in such a, a degree that his anger is kindled against any who would come against them, especially leading them to sin. Give me another passage to think about. Matthew 23. We could really think about all of Matthew 23. I mean, it's, it's Jesus saying, whoa, 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 whoa. And he's not, he's not saying whoa as in stop. He's pronouncing the oracle of woe. It's a, it's a prophetic judgment that he's issuing against the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite of his day. He, he's telling them, woe to you. Judgment is upon you. Why? And man, it's some strong language that he's unleashing upon them there. Well, listen to what he says in Matthew 23, 34, and 35. He says, I send you prophets and wise men, wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barkiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Upon those scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, the, the indignation that you unleash against the prophets, the acts committed against them, they're on you. These woes, these, these oracles of judgment I'm placing upon you, my righteous indignation is pouring out upon you. Why? Look at what you did to my own. Again, it's rising and falling together. He's not a squishy savior tonight. Then we come to John 11. John 11. John 11 is a chapter that in its, in its plot is propelled by love, but displays the indignation of Christ. What I mean by that is it's love that moves the story along. But in moving the story along in the current of the heart of, of Christ for his own, his indignation comes on display. John 11 opens with the sisters sending word to Jesus about Lazarus. Listen to what they say in verse 3. Listen. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Jesus loved Lazarus. That wasn't an untrue statement. It was as true as anything else in the word of God. He loved Lazarus. And so everything that Jesus is doing from this point out is a display of the love that he has for Lazarus in John 11. And it seems strange and it seems odd to us because he tarries, he delays. Ultimately, as we 
know how the story unfolds. We, we, we can understand what he's doing. He's displaying the glory of God for all to see. But at the same time, at the same time, he's displaying out of the love that he has for his own, the indignation he has for those who would stand against his own. And not just those who were there, but if I could say it this way, those who were behind the scene. Too often when we come to the graveside of Lazarus, we believe that Jesus is coming in uncontrollable grief, but instead it's actually irrepressible anger. He is moved with indignation in his spirit. He is greatly troubled. Warfield said, The emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance from his lips was a just rage. He goes on to explain, It is death in John 11, verse 33, that is the object of his wrath, his indignation. And behind that death, the one who has the power of death, and behind him, I would add, all of those who are uh, in unbelief with him, all those who side with him. He's coming against the unbelief that is surrounding him at this moment. He's coming against the one who has the power of death over Lazarus. He's filled inwardly with compassion for Lazarus that is also being displayed in a righteous indignation. So that tears may fill his eyes, Warfield says, but listen to this, his soul is held by rage. He's not a squishy Jesus tonight. What we begin to discover as we think about this emotional side of our Savior, as we think about his indignation, his his righteous anger, is that it goes hand in hand with the compassion that he has for his own as well. Jesus stands with you and is angrier than you could ever be. He's angry on your behalf. His anger can be trusted and his anger is for you as well. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do in knowing that not only is his heart poured out to us in compassion and sympathy uh, and empathy and understanding, but also that for those things that stand against us, for those who would come against us, that Jesus stands with us in a righteous anger. How How do we take this and apply it? Well, we'll give you two, two ways. First of all, Don't diffuse your anger so quickly if it's the right anger. All right? We we looked at this when we studied through Ephesians. Paul speaks there of having a righteous anger. Be angry, but sin not. So it's right to be angry about the, the things that anger God. There's a right time to be angry. And we need to make sure that we, we've got the right anger. But if it is the right anger, we don't have to, to always be so quick to diffuse it. Now, don't allow that anger to give opportunity to the enemy. I think that's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 4. But understand, a righteous indignation is not a wrong indignation. But in knowing that Jesus is standing with you and is angrier than you could ever be, 
at those things which have been wronged against you or the sin that has come against you or the enemy that is against you. And knowing that his anger is the one that we can ultimately trust in. Knowing all of that, for some of us tonight, it means that we need to release those who we're angry toward. We need to release the bitterness, the hurt even if you will, the indignation that we hold against them. Because what we discover in a Savior who's not squishy is that His heart is for us not only in compassion, but we also have His solidarity in rage against all that distresses us and most certainly, most certainly, the enemy of Satan and sin and death itself. He stands against all of those today. As much as he is for us in his compassion, so his anger is for us against all those distresses. So release your debtor and breathe again. You ever seen a child get so angry? I can't get their breath. Maybe you've seen an adult do that as well. What we realize tonight is that that doesn't have to be. Even when every right that you have to be angry is justified, you can still let it go. Because Jesus stands in rage against that which is distressing you. And his anger can be trusted. He's not, he's not a squishy savior tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word and work it into our lives. Lord, that we have a savior who is gentle and lowly. But that doesn't mean that he's soft and squishy. His rage goes out against our enemies. As surely as he loves us, so he will fight for us. So he will defend us. So let us not seek vengeance. But let us trust in him. Let us rest in his love for us that's beyond degree. Lord, I pray for all of these who are before me tonight. God, may they go filled with your spirit and yielded to your ways. And may they go with your face shining down upon them. For we ask it tonight in Christ's name. Amen.